Hello and welcome to The Scrum. It's a podcast we do here at WGBH News on politics, sometimes focused on Boston or Massachusetts. Sometimes we get a little more ambitious and look at national or even international things. I am joined today by Peter Kadzis, the editor of WGBHnews.org. Hello, Peter. Greetings. And both by David Bernstein, my former and current colleague, I guess, from the Boston Phoenix and WGBH News down there in what are we calling it, David? Our satellite DC bureau, our Virginia bureau. What's the technical term? Um, in the South, in the, our man in in the, the heart South. Of the south yeah. Okay, our man in the Southland, and and this is very exciting because I've heard David talk about him for many years now, but have never actually met or spoken with him. David's brother, Jonathan Bernstein, who is a columnist at Bloomberg View, <laughs> where he writes about uh, big political topics. Jonathan, thank you for making time to join us. Glad to be here. Jonathan, I want to ask you about uh, a couple stories that you've written recently for Bloomberg. I should say columns, uh, a few recent columns, and what seems to me to be sort of the the general attitudinal stance you're taking. The titles that jumped out at me when I was looking at at the roster of your recent work include "The Republic Will Survive the Scalia Vacancy," "Superdelegates Won't Swipe Nomination," and "A Messy Election Like Lincoln Had in Mind." Now the common thread to those, and there's some others that I didn't mention, to me seems to be everyone needs to chill the f*** out as they talk about the 2016 presidential race. Am I right that that is sort of a guiding analytical principle of yours? And if so, why is that something that you think is, uh, why is it an approach that you think is important? I I think it's generally true that uh, political scientists, and maybe me in particular, but I think political scientists tend to take an approach that we've seen this before, don't overreact to the latest poll, don't re- overreact to the latest rumor, um, you know, we'll survive this. Uh, you know, I mean, if we have no ninth Supreme Court justice for a year, you know, I, it, it's outrageous to me that the Republicans would blockade a Supreme Court justice for a year. But it's not going to bring down the republic. It's not going to, you know, it's not a constitutional crisis. So I I think that's, you know, one of the things that you do when you study these things is you do get, I hope, a little bit better perspective than the day-to-day that um, we're often sort of forced into doing, um, especially in the pundit business, which, you know, I'm part of too. So, And do you think that, uh, that people get whipped into a frenzy, I guess the public and the media, by the political media? Are we the primary offenders when it comes to making everyone hyperventilate? Or are uh, the candidates themselves responsible? Can we lay the blame with someone else? All of us, everybody. The media is certainly doing it, but the media wouldn't do it if people didn't click on, you know, big stories. People don't click on Trump is still leading. Well, I guess maybe he isn't because we have a new poll out right now, but people don't. But I guess that would be part of it. Instead of saying, hey, you know, here's a new poll. We have a new poll right now saying uh, Ted Cruz is ahead nationally. Instead of saying, forget individual polls, look at the polling averages, we'll see whether something happens, you know, people aren't going to click on that. So uh, there's strong incentives for everybody to overreact to everything. David, do you feel uh, do you feel like you as a uh, pundit yourself, is, is Jonathan being fair to our profession there, uh, pundits, political journalists, people who flap their gums like we are right now, or uh, you think he's given us a, a, an unfair shake? Well, no, no, I, I think that it's it's generally fair. I, I find myself often uh, 
defending uh, journal the journalists field the media against uh, political science sometimes but that's not because we're doing a great job in the media but just that I think that oftentimes political scientists not so much uh, my brother but uh, that oftentimes political scientists uh, over over generalize the media you know when really what's annoying them are particular outlets that oftentimes aren't even seen by the general public anyway and yeah, you know, well, I don't know. I, I'll tell you, I, I, I think these days the media is pretty annoying. I, I think the, the, the sort of responsible, sensible people are more in the minority. Um, you, you've got the PAC, you've got uh, cable TV, uh, heaven forbid, you've got talk radio, which isn't really media. As I've said many times, if I were king, I would abolish talk radio. But... Um, I'll tell you, I think I think Donald Trump, for example, would have been a national phenomenon without the media. But the media has just, I think, been irresponsibly, you know, fanning his flames in part by not calling him to task for some of the things he said. For example, you know, Donald Trump, oh, you know, I lost so many friends on 9-11. I'd like to see pictures of all the funerals he went to. Now I'm sure those it, those are coming, and the opposition research people will be well. And that's uh, that actually came out today. There was a piece questioning whether, uh, I guess, uh, I forget who the journalist or what the outlet was, but uh, it basically reported that he's been trying to get the Trump campaign to release any names to give any names of friends that Trump lost, and they haven't, and that. You know, some conversations with people suggested that he didn't attend any funerals and uh, and some other things like that. And I think we'll see more and more of that. And I think that one of the good things that political science, that the influence of political scientists has done as it's increased in recent election cycles is help to point to some things that journalists can look into um, that would be, you know, interesting to find out and, and relevant to find out. But on the other hand, um, and I know that, that John has uh, has said this too. It, I'm not. It's not all political scientists, but um, uh, oftentimes political scientists get really annoyed at media uh, writing things or reporting on things that are not ultimately important in so, the choosing of a president or the how an election is going to go. That doesn't mean it's not newsworthy or worth reporting. But, but on. like what? I mean, I would tend to agree with you, but. Um, Jonathan, you want to hop in? Yeah, I, I, I think um, that that's a fair criticism. In general, I, I think I've criticized other political scientists who would do stuff like that. But I think on the whole, what we would do is say, yeah, hey, absolutely, go out, talk to voters, talk, you know, tell us what events are like, uh, tell us about the candidates. It doesn't have to determine whether somebody wins or loses an, uh, an election to be a interesting and important story. Just try not to tell us, "Oh, I talked to one voter, and therefore I see a trend." You know, um, and and we all be, know it takes three voters. To a lot of journalists exactly. don't do that, but you know, Peggy Noonan does it once, and everybody's tired for life. You know what strikes me about this election is that we really have some historical you know, some real history in the making. I mean, Donald Trump is really, you know, the first time since um, Huey Long and Father Coughlin um, that that we've had 
you know, a, a real authoritarian, right-leaning, fire-breathing uh, uh, creature at, at large. Um, you, you know, you've got Cruz, who was just, as a character goes, just a fascinatingly weaselly guy. But there's some real historic stuff going on right now. And um, uh, I, ju- I just think it's fascinating. Jonathan, is, is uh, Peter overstating the historicity, uh, if that's the right use of the term, of this election? <laughs> well, I, as someone who believes that Donald Trump has very little chance to be the nominee still and that Bernie Sanders is ultimately not, not have a very good chance of being the nominee, um, I think it's easy to get carried away with it. But no, I mean, the fact that you know Trump has led in the polls for several months makes it an important story. Um, you know, what Bernie Sanders is doing in the Democratic Party could very well have a lot of effect down the road, you know, even if he does win, wind up winning half a dozen states or, or something like that. So, sure, I mean, all presidential elections are important. But uh, me, and, me, and particularly, you know, political parties are important, and what's happening in both political parties is, you know, going to change them because nominations create our parties, redefine our parties every time around. So, yeah, they're... You know, it's big stories no matter who wins. Let me get you to back up for a second, uh, just for anyone who might not be familiar with your arguments about why both Trump and Sanders are highly unlikely to be their party's nominee. Why do you say that's the case? Um, what, uh, there's a famous book in political science called The Party Decides, and I've done research in this area also. And what we tend to find is that um, what I call party actors um, determine nominations, not voters, but the politicians, the campaign and governing professionals, the donors, uh, the activists, um, party-aligned media, like you know, Fox News on the Republican mm-hmm. side or something like that. Um, working together, they wind up deciding on a candidate, and that candidate usually gets nominated. And what's happened this time is on the Democratic side, we've seen the biggest support among party actors for a candidate, I think, ever, at least in the modern, you know, in the modern era for Hillary Clinton. Right. And that tends to give her huge advantages, whatever uh, happens in individual primaries or individual polls. And on the Republican side, the Republicans hadn't made up their minds until very recently. They seem to be deciding for Rubio, but what they certainly don't want is Donald Trump as their nominee. Let me and just they're going to work very, very hard to keep that from happening. Just one more question. My sense is that they've been trying to work at keeping that from happening for a while now, and that he has just figured out a way to... Um, remain impervious to their attempts to derail him. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, Have they not already been working on an institutional level to try to take Trump down? You know, sort of. But first of all, just because we think that the parties work together, um, work together to get an omnia, Nate Silver had a great line about, well, the parties may try, but they may be stupid. Or Yeah, he had something like that. Um, the, The big strategy that they had in Iowa was because a lot of them, don't want Ted Cruz to win either, was that they were going to try to defeat Trump and Cruz by praising Trump, which didn't really make any sense. Now in South Carolina, apparently, they're going to try to do it by finding a different candidate to support, which is going to be Rubio. And we'll see how that works out. So who is coming Uh, from the... Oh, yeah, David, go ahead, because I know you think that the endorsement of Rubio by Nikki Haley is a big deal. Yeah, I do. And and I just wanted to to follow up on what 
John was saying in, in two ways. One is that on the political science uh, issue, and this is something that's that I've encountered in other areas of reporting as well as uh, politics, because academics always think that the media in their field is doing a terrible job. And one of the difficulties between political scientists and media who cover a field is that the the political scientists or the academics don't know if something big has changed until after the fact. And the media covering it always, you know, wonders or thinks that something different is happening. And they say, well, you know, I remember, you know, when I covered a lot of uh, criminal justice and, you know, you'd have these academics saying, saying, well, no, because we have this data from the, you know, the shows from 1980 and to 1992, and and I'd say, well, how do you know that that 2003 isn't completely different? And they'd say, well, I won't know that until 2006, you know, and that and that's just a natural, you know, uh, divide there. But I would also, you know, when when John had you know mentioned that Nate Silver line of the parties can be stupid. In my opinion, my uh, view of what's happening to a large extent in both parties is that the party actors, um, it, it's who they decide on is not really a meritocracy. And we saw that in this time around, that really the party actors, uh, like John said, rallied 100% around uh, Hillary Clinton, who is just not a great candidate. And, you know, she's fine. She's certainly qualified, and she'll be fine and all that sort of thing. But she's not a great candidate. And But they rallied around her in part because the Clinton power machine is so vast and so powerful and everything and and they shut out everyone else from from getting into the race and and all that sort of thing and on the other side it was the bush family who hold enormous power in in the world of the gop and they really uh, from very very early on squashed every attempt for you know other candidates to get much traction and really tried to rally the whole party around Jeb Bush, who is not a good candidate. And and as John said, looks like, and I think that the Nikki Haley endorsement governor of South Carolina, I think that's a big signal that the party is finally saying, all right, we've given Jeb enough time to make his case that he can really win this nomination. Now we all have to, you know, come out for someone else. Well, don't you think... <clears throat> I, I, Right. Let me let me jump in with with a partial disagreement there. Um, I, I agree on the Republican side. I think that's exactly right. On the Democratic side, I, I want to back up one second. Hillary Clinton is not the most natural uh, public speaker, especially in in um, prepared speeches. But I think that's where maybe you can you can look and say, well, okay, what kind of skills does a candidate have? And her ability to work back rooms is apparently very impressive because. That's how she's getting all these endorsements. So I, she has weaknesses as a candidate, but she has some strengths, too. And I, um, it's possible the strengths that we see less of matter more than the weaknesses that we maybe see more of. Yeah, see, John, I mean, I, I would agree that with that. I have um, a, a very good friend who's been a speechwriter to both uh, President Clinton and worked very closely with uh, uh, uh Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and he says that she in person is an almost completely different person than the one 
we all see in public. But, but, but that's sort of a footnote to a previous conversation. One of the many things that fascinates me about this year is just, you know, the, the, the two significant revolts, if you will, the, 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 the very polite and orderly rejection by um, a vast number of Democrats of, you know, the, the establishment candidate in, in the very raucous and impolite um, uh, rejection within the Republican Party, uh, and, and especially among those Democrats who vote Republican. Um, in, in what I find interesting about this is these are people who are motivating themselves. You know, they are they're marching towards Bernie, who, who, by the way, I think is a long shot for getting the nomination. And um, or, or you know, following behind Trump, who I don't think is much as much of a long shot. And by the way, they're marching, as I've seen it, um, not just from you know one or two conversations, but from a lot more than that with various voters and and activists. They're marching for similar reasons. You hear Sanders and Trump talk about frustration with jobs being sent to Mexico or China or somewhere else overseas, and they sound almost identical. And despite their different vantage points. I think they both tapped into this real deep-seated frustration with the financial realities of American politics today that for a lot of people who were in politics, it was, oh, well, that's just the way it is. It's only the you know, starry-eyed idealists who dream of changing it. But now you've got a candidate on the far left and the far right, both of whom are saying the status quo is untenable and we got to get rid of it. So I guess my question, maybe you think that premise is wrong, Jonathan, but are there times when an institutional approach is not able to be sufficiently sensitive to real changes in the zeitgeist when it just, you know, the, the way things have usually worked breaks down because people have come to feel very strongly about one or two issues in a way they didn't before? It's certainly possible. Uh, and, you know, I, I, to defend political scientists, um, Norm Ornstein thinks this time it is different, and he thinks Trump's going to be the nominee and, and uh, maybe president. So, um, you know, I, I always speak for sort of my point of view, but it's it's me personally, and it's sort of one slice of political science. We don't all necessarily agree, but yeah, I mean, what David said it before is absolutely right that we are we uh, are not especially good at seeing something completely different come around. And um, when I do, you know, public writing, I try to r- remember to put at the bottom of everything. Of course, it could be totally different this time. Yeah, I've seen you do hey, that. L- l- let me ask both you guys a question, um, a, a two-part question. Um, who, who uh, among the Republicans, who wins in South Carolina? That's part one. And two, on Super Tuesday, who will emerge, you know, as the, you know, the biggest victor? Uh, the, 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 the two victors of, of Super Tuesday. So you get to pick one for, for uh, South Carolina and two for Super Tuesday. You want to go first? Oh, me? Uh, I can go first, sure. Uh, I do think that uh, Trump will probably end up winning South Carolina. I think the, uh, the more interesting thing now is, you know, what, does, what happens with Rubio and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush you know, if uh, if Rubio is a strong second, um, you know, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz needs to win 
throughout the South. And the South is all happening, you know, most of it is happening in a big hurry. And that's supposed to be a stronghold. If he's third place uh, in South Carolina, I think that puts a real uh, hit on his argument and his case. Um, I don't know how he's doing in terms of fundraising. I suppose he'll he'll be fine. So I, I, I don't know what happens to, you know, how much of a hit it would be to him going forward. But being third is is a big problem. I think that if Jeb Bush doesn't do a lot better than I think he's going to do. I, I think that he's going to be under a lot of internal pressure to drop out. I think he already is feeling that. But uh, but it's a big difference if he gets, you know, 18 percent versus if he gets 8 uh, percent. But if Rubio is a strong second, then I think it becomes a, a lot of pressure on Trump to to back down. And, and all that is to say that, that that all determines what happens on the March 1st and, you know, the so-called SEC primary. And, um, you know, if if there really is sort of a rallying around Rubio, if it starts to be seen as, okay, Ted Cruz can't win in the South, which is the only place he can win or should win, he's not going to make it. Um, you know, Kasich doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Bush doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It, it starts to look to people that there are really only two people who could become the the nominee then that changes the whole dynamic very quickly in time for that March 1st uh, primary day. Uh, if it's a more muddled picture behind Trump, then I think it's a more muddled picture on March 1st. So I, I kind of weaseled out of that whole question, I think. Yeah, right. But you no, did it very exactly well. Right. All right, Jonathan, I, I you get the last word here. Said, so i got to find something uh, to, to add to that. But, <laughs> Will so, Jim Gilmore reactivate his campaign? Go. <laughs> What I do think is, unless the polling turns out to be totally wrong or something last second happens and he's running out, the debate didn't do it, he didn't get the Haley uh, endorsement, I don't see how Jeb Bush remains in uh, after after Saturday, after South Carolina. Even and, if and he, I have to yep. – I'm, I'm sorry. Go, I, I was just going to say that, that I have to believe that, that the reason Nikki Haley – that Nikki Haley would not have come out and done this – if she thought that that Bush was surging, uh, she's the governor of the state. She's the head of the the state party. She clearly has a, a pretty good read on what's going on. My guess is that, and she was signaling just a couple of days ago that she probably wasn't going to endorse. My guess is that she saw some overnight tracking that that showed that even George W. Bush's appearance on behalf of Jeb didn't move the needle for, no, for her, Jeb. Her and endorsement of to, Rubio was stop Trump. All right, uh, we've all stolen Jonathan's thunder here. By, no, by all of that, us, I, I mean, I agree David. With all of that. Um, okay. I, I think she probably did see some late polling. I, I don't see what happens, how Jeb comes back from this. And if he doesn't, if he finishes fourth, you know, even if he gets up to 14%, 15%, which is higher than he's polling right now, I, I think he's out. I wonder whether Kasich can survive. Um, you know, he's been talking about, well, we'll make our last, our next stand in Michigan. You can't make your next stand after a third of the delegates are chosen. <laughs> right. So if he winds up well under 10 percent, he may drop out. So we may be down to three candidates or, or four if Carson sticks around um, I forgot very about quickly. Him. Yeah, forgot he's and still And then raised. if Rubio does finish ahead of Cruz in the, the March 1st states, then I'm not sure that Cruz survives. All right, that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. I want to thank both of the brothers Bernstein for being with us. Jonathan Bernstein, esteemed political scientist and columnist at Bloomberg View, thank you for making time. 
Thank you. And I, I should note that I owe uh, my brother a dinner in Vegas this summer because he oh, beat wow. me in a Super Bowl bet. So. Oh, David, congratulations. I had no idea. Uh, and David, uh, obviously, I... thanks to you for being here as well. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Um, Peter Kadzis, thanks for making the walk down from the second floor to the first floor with me. <clears throat> it was an arduous journey. And if you like what you heard today, listeners, you can subscribe to The Scrum on iTunes. You can even leave a review while you're at it. You can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud on our, on our website, wgbhnews.org scrum. You can email us feedback, praise, blame, and ideas for future conversations you might like to hear at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley, and The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.